Good morning, everybody. It is a joy to be with you today as we continue to explore God's ancient wisdom for our modern world. As we get ready to do that this morning, would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, shaking us to new life in you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It is the summer of 1996. I have completed three years of college in pursuit of a biblical studies major. My options, therefore, are rather limited. After my senior year, I will not be going to med school. I will not be starting a job in education or marketing or business or law. I will either go into some direct ministry to start serving immediately, or I will need to go on to seminary. And being in the United Methodist Church and on the pastoral track, I know I need to go on to seminary. But the dreaded question is where? This is an awfully big decision. And I feel like the trajectory of my entire life is riding on this one decision. If I pick a bad seminary, I will not be ready for a life in ministry. Or if I pick a seminary strictly out of convenience or one that is geographically close, I might be sacrificing spiritual formation for the convenience. And at the same time, this might be one of the last times I get to do something really adventurous, and so maybe I should look to go somewhere halfway or the entire way across the country. But I don't know where to go, and I don't know what to do. Actually, the one thing I do know is I want to go wherever the Lord wants me to go. But I'm just not sure where that is. Even though I keep asking and wanting God to make it clear to me. I keep asking God to make it clear, and I try looking it up in the Bible, but I cannot find the section in the Bible that says what seminary I should attend in the 1990s in America. This is my mindset in the summer of 1996. How do I figure out where to go to seminary? And I remember asking God, show me a sign. Show me where I'm to go and give me signs so I can discern where you want me to go. And many things happened that particular summer that I wondered, God, is this a sign that you're showing me so I can discern where you want me to go? Uh, some good friends of mine had gone to a great seminary in Kentucky. Was that a sign? They were encouraging me to go, and if it had worked well for them, maybe it would work well for me except I didn't really feel drawn there. There was another great school out on the West Coast, and I thought if I study there, that'll get me out of my comfort zone and I'll have to make new friends and really rely on God in a strong and different way. Was that a sign to go there then? There was yet another seminary that was geographically close. Maybe that was the one to go to. Maybe that was the sign that I could easily get there, but I had heard some things about that seminary that weren't so great. And then maybe most odd of all that I thought is this a sign is that through a series of unique circumstances, I actually met president or former president Jimmy Carter. Many of you might know he's a great man of faith, and he literally offered to help get me into a seminary called Emory in Atlanta, Georgia. Surely, if there was any sign to pay attention to, it was that one. And then around this time, another acquaintance encouraged me to at least go and visit the Divinity School at Duke. And after Lee, I decided to do that. I went to the campus on Duke and explored and talked to different people. And literally, as I started to leave campus that day, 
another car came through an intersection when it should have stopped right as I was going through and it smashed into the side of my car, busting out the windows. And thankfully I didn't suffer more than a pretty bruised hip, but no broken bones or anything like that. Was this a sign that I should not go to Duke Divinity School? Because I remember thinking, Lord, if ever there was a sign, surely this was it. And so the more I tried to discern and the more I kept asking for signs, I just could not figure it out. Lord, why don't you just tell me? Just tell me where you want me to go and I will. I share that story because we all have decisions that we need to make like this on a pretty regular basis. Maybe not where to go to seminary, but we all have big decisions that affect the trajectory of our life. Lord, what college should I go to? Lord, what should my major be? God, who should I marry? How many kids should we have? How do we even know when it's time to get married? What job should I take? Is it time to switch jobs? Where should we live? What home should we buy? All of these are giant questions that again, shape the entire direction of our lives in some way. And then every day we make a lot of decisions on a much smaller scale, but they are still significant in a variety of ways. What will I or will I not post on Facebook today? What will I do or say to that friend who I know has hurt me? How do I best help that struggling kid? What's the right thing to do in regards to COVID? What set of politics do I support? What should I do in this health situation? What's the next right step I need to take? What is a next right thing to do? And again, don't we all look for various signs? Signs that will show us where we should go and what that should look like. Don't we all wanna look up the section in the Bible that tells us here's what you need to do in this set of circumstances to know a next right step to take? The big term for all of these kinds of questions is the term discernment. And you might remember from last week, we defined discernment as the means to make an, as the means for the ability to take a next right step in the midst of many different options and competing voices. I'm not sure there's been a more difficult time to try to discern our way forward than right now in our culture with voices constantly coming at us with differing opinions and differing points of view. There's increasingly no area of our life untouched by these loud and competing voices, which can make it so very difficult to discern what we should do next and therefore leave us wondering, okay, God, now what? What should I do next? This entire series that we're engaged in and exploring God's ancient wisdom for a modern world is really developed around this question and starting to understand how we can take a next right step forward. Last week, we were reminded that one of the ways that we do that is we learn to seek that which is true. If we can keep our eyes on that which is true, on Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and pursue Christ in that direction, we can have confidence to know we're moving in a good direction. Now today, we're looking again in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and we're going to look now not only at truth, but also whatever is honorable. And so we hear, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Other translations use the word noble rather than honorable. 
I think honorable is one of those terms we kind of know what it means, we sort of know what it means, but if we were to try to define it, it's probably hard for us to get our minds exactly around explicit language for what honorable means. At its most basic level, the, world, the word honorable carries with it the idea of something with weight or gravity that stands the test of time. So when we honor somebody, we respect them, we value them and the significance of who they are, what they've done and the position that they hold. So think for just a moment in a court of law, the judge is often introduced as the honorable judge so-and-so, meaning that that judge deserves our respect and that we value the significance of who they are. But honor comes not just with a recognition of respect, it's also a reference to reputation that is formed by action. And those two things should match up. We become honorable when a good reputation is matched by good actions that form the good reputation. Or to say it another way, people are honorable when they make choices consistent with the significance of their identity or work or office. So we view someone honorably when we see them making good and truthful and decisions full of integrity. I love the way author Hannah Anderson comments. She says, to seek honorable things then is to pursue things that have inherent value, weight, and significance. There's a gravitas that comes with honor. In scripture, in the early church, when it was taking shape, they needed to find and raise up leaders who were honorable. But how do you find those people? Who should those leaders be? How do you know who you can trust and who you can't? How do you know who's worthy of leading God's people and who can't? And it's interesting the process they went through to find those early leaders. How would they discern who they were? Were they the individuals who spoke the loudest? Were they the, the individuals who carried the most charism? Was it the individuals who conducted the best voting campaigns? Or was it those who yelled the loudest? Was it those with the most money? No, it was none of those things. Paul says, if you wanna discern who among you should lead you, here's how you should do it. If we go to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses one through seven, we hear this. The saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. That term for noble is the same word used for honorable. So how do we know who is honorable? How do we know who is noble? Well, Paul gets very, very specific here with us today. And I want us to listen carefully to this description so that we can know, according to Paul, what it means to be honorable. Here's what he says. Now, a bishop or leader must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil." Now, that is pretty specific on the part of Paul. Those are extremely high standards on the part of Paul. 
But that description from Paul gives us an idea of what it means to be honorable. And I wanna invite us this morning to not get caught up in the general language that Paul's using here. Remember, this is a very different culture at a very different time. This was a very patriarchal culture. And so we have to be aware of that when Paul is sharing with us today. But we know that while cultures change, scripture always remains relevant. And so I want us to look at what Paul is sharing in the idea here related to what it means to be honorable. He's writing again to say, here's who you wanna find as your leaders. He's giving then us a blueprint for what it means for us to be honorable. Specifically, he's saying, here's how you should conduct yourself and wherever you see these things, you can trust that honor is sure to follow. As men and women who carry themselves with dignity and significance and a gravitas that matches their holy calling. To better understand what we mean by honorable, I also want to ask us to consider this passage in Titus chapter 2. And again, hear the direct charge both to men and women in this passage. It says, your job is to speak out on the things that make for solid doctrine. Guide older men into lives of temperance, dignity, and wisdom, into healthy faith, love, and endurance. Guide older women into lives of reverence so that they end up as neither gossips nor drunks, but models of goodness. By looking at them, the younger women will know how to love their husbands and children, be virtuous and pure, keep a good house, be good wives. We don't want anyone looking down on God's message because of their behavior. Also, guide the young men to live disciplined lives. But mostly, show them all this by doing it yourself trustworthy in your teaching, your words solid and sane. Then anyone who's dead set against us, when he finds nothing weird or misguided, might eventually come around. Now, again, it's a different culture that Paul is addressing here, but hear what he is sharing in regards to honor, temperament, dignity, wisdom, faith, love, endurance, goodness, not gossiping, not being drunk. Again, the discipline, being trustworthy. All of that then, says Paul, leads to honor. So I ask us, in light of those descriptors, are our lives currently honorable? When you mix them all together, we find honor. Are our lives right now filled with honor? And when we're seeking to discern and make decisions, when we're trying to make decisions that will stand the test of time, with endurance, are those decisions marked by the pursuit of what is good and filled with discipline and wisdom and faith and love? When we pursue those things, we pursue that which is honorable. And therefore, we can know that the next step we're taking is a good one. I want to ask us for just a moment to really consider what the Bible shares about this idea of honor. It's used a number of times throughout Scripture. And as we look at different Scriptures, we start to get an idea of all that is involved with the concept of honor. So in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 3, we hear, It is honorable to refrain from strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. In other words, honorable people rarely have a whole lot of drama following them. I mean, they have drama and they have challenges, but the non-honorable life is always found with a swirl of drama around it. Also, we know that a lack of honor, it often leads to division and quarreling. So we hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 23, and those members of the body 
that we think are less honorable, we clothe with greater honor, and our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. There's a humility that comes with honor. We also know that honor has a way of bridging divides and gaps among us. So 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that though they might malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. We also know that doing the honorable things means having the courage to say and do the right thing even when it's not easy. Honor has a strength to it to do that right thing. So Proverbs chapter eight, verse six says, hear, for I will speak noble things, honorable things, and from my lips will come that which is right. And finally, we know that honor can end evil. Think about that, honor has the power to stop evil in its tracks. So Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says, do not repay anyone for evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble or honorable in the sight of all. All of that to say there's a whole lot summed up in the concept of honor. There's a sense of no drama with honor. There's a sense of humility with honor. There's a sense of bridging the divides and the gaps with honor. There's a sense of strength with honor. And there's a sense of ending evil in its tracks with honor. So that when we're seeking to make a next right decision, those are the things that we wanna see. Decisions that don't lead to drama. Decisions marked by humility. Decisions that bring us together instead of divide us apart. Decisions that have a strength to them and can pause evil in our world. All of that then helps us discern our way forward to make a next right choice. And how is that the case? There's so much that we could say on this, but when it comes to figuring out how we can make an honorable choice, I wanna lift up a couple things for us today to consider. How do we discern what is honorable in order to make a good choice? Number one, just pause and ask the question. We live in a world of constant change with something new coming at us all the time, practically every moment. So here's what I wanna ask us to do. When something new comes onto our radar, when something new flashes up on our news feed or in a conversation with somebody else, or when we have something new to consider, I wanna ask us to think what voice is sharing with us and then just pause and ask a couple questions like this. Is what I'm currently hearing now honorable? Does this deserve my attention? Does what I'm now hearing deserve my respect? Does what I'm now hearing deserve my time and attention and focus? Just pausing and asking those questions has the potential to disrupt the cultural voices and forces in our lives just long enough to free us from their grasp. So pause and ask. Imagine if that was to be our mindset every time we scrolled through Facebook or listening to our news cycles or having somebody that we talk with on a regular basis if we're always filtering it through those kinds of questions. Just asking the questions can help us better understand what is truly honorable. We also wanna make the choice that points to God's image over our own. Most of the decisions that we make in life are designed to make us look good and make us comfortable and to conform what we like rather than what God might have to say to us. But here's the problem with pursuing our own image all the time. Here's the problem with pursuing our own comfort all the time. It becomes an endless black hole that we can never get enough of and that never satisfies. 
If our entire life is based on the image we project to others, it becomes exhausting to have to do that all the time and to hold up a certain image all the time. When we begin to base our worth on the feedback of others, we start to head down a dangerous trail. It's why we hear this frequently. You can hear 10 comments that are positive and only one that's negative. What do we focus on? The one that's negative. We have to find a way to base our identity on more than the opinions of others. I'm not saying don't ever listen to other people, but I am saying we cannot base our entire worth and value just on what others say because the opinions of others change on a regular basis, usually in relation to what you are or are not doing for them. But when it comes to God's perspective in our life, God's opinion of us never changes. It is always one of love, defined in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so the next time that you have a decision to make, try thinking about it beyond only how other people might perceive your decision. Instead of asking only, what will others think if I do this? Or what will they think if I went there or did that? Or instead of thinking, how's this going to reflect on me? Try simply asking, is what I'm about to do good or honorable? I was talking with a friend not too long ago, and his sibling is frequently on Facebook, always trying to cultivate a certain image. And my friend was saying that his sibling can never ever relax. It's just one evaluation after another, after another, after another to determine how he will be perceived by others. Again, how exhausting <laughs> to have to try to impress people all the time. To be honorable means we can be freed from that constant pursuit of the opinion of others. And again, we may not all be on Instagram, we may not all be on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok, but we all have the temptation to make a decision based on what our kids will think or what our parents will think or what our coworkers will think or what our friends and peers will think. That's not how we discern our best life. Because again, we can never please everyone. Opinions come and go. Someone invite us to make decisions in line with the one who never changes, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. For honorable people, the goal is not to do what makes them look good. The goal is to do what is good. So next time we're making a decision, we want to pause and just ask some questions. Is this good? Is this honorable? We also want to make a choice that points more to God than to ourselves. I also want to invite us the next time that we have a decision to make, seek counsel. Whenever we're facing a big decision, we're not going to know it all. We're not going to know all the different angles to pursue. We're not the experts in every situation. Now, there's always been a tendency in human tradition to not honor experts. Uh, maybe that's why Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. This is Paul's way of saying to the people then, hey, trust the elders. They know what they're doing. They are equipped for this. They are trained for this. This is their calling. They know what they're doing. It's worth remembering that compared to the surrounding Greco-Roman society at this time, it was the church that was incredibly egalitarian. It sought to treat everybody equally. It had the focus on the rich and the poor, slave and free, Gentile and Jew, men and women. The early church focused on everyone as equally as possible, but at the same time, 
the church said it's precisely because everyone is equal and is a part of the body, each with a different calling and a different equipping, that you as an individual shouldn't think that you as one part of the body inherently know more than another part of the body. Trust them in what they are equipped to do, and they'll trust you in what you are equipped to do to inform each other to move forward in a good way. Paul knew that in this time, the risk was not that the church leaders would be honored too much or elevated too high, but rather they would be honored too little. And so he's saying to everyone, look, the elders trust them. Again, they're trained for this, equipped for this. Trust them. You and I right now live in a time also where we often view the expert in whatever field with a sense of suspicion. And thus it becomes our tendency to ask our great aunt Millie their opinion on important matters and hold the great aunt Millie's opinion just as high or higher than maybe a PhD with 30 years of trained experience. This is why talk show hosts and news anchors have more credibility now in our current culture than lifelong civil servants. It's why for many of us, we tend to ask our Facebook friends, the counsel, if they think the doctor gave us good counsel about our health, hey, do you think this is a good idea? Even if our Facebook friend lives across the country, hasn't seen us in who knows how long. It doesn't even make sense when we stop and think about it. And yet this is what we do. Now, I'm not saying in any way that we should simply blindly accept everything that comes our way without question from experts. I'm simply saying to recognize with humility, there may be areas in life that we don't know as much about. And so can we seek the counsel of others who might have more knowledge and expertise than us and weigh that into our decision-making? And finally, we seek to make the choice that will stand the test of time. We're so tempted to grab for the flashy, but in God's kingdom, humble consistency outweighs flashy attention every single time. It's so easy to grab onto the flashy and think that's what makes the difference because we tend to see this in our culture and it's the flash that tends to be lifted up, but rarely is a long lasting difference made that way. Again, it's the humble, consistent reality that changes things. Recently, one of you sent me an email, and I wanted to share this with a lot of you today because I think it gets at this point of consistency versus flash. And the following is the philosophy of Charles Schultz. You probably know that name. He's the creator of the Peanuts comic strip. Here's what it says. Name the five wealthiest people in the world. Name the last five Heisman Trophy winners. Name 10 people who've won the Nobel or Pulitzer Prize. Name the last half dozen Academy Award winners for Best Actor and Actress. Name the last decade's worth of World Series winners. If you were to answer those questions quickly, how would you do? It's not very often that we remember the headlines of yesterday. It's not very often that we remember these grand achievements lifted up by our culture, even the things identified as best in their field, because very quickly applause fades, awards tarnish, achievements become forgotten, accolades tend to get buried with their owners. But now answer these questions with yourself. List a few teachers who aided you in your journey. Name three friends who've helped you through a difficult time. Name five people who have taught you something worthwhile. Think of a few people who've made you feel especially appreciated or special. Think of five people you enjoy spending time with. See, rarely are the people who make the biggest differences in our lives the people with the biggest accomplishments or the most money. 
They're the ones who humbly walk with us day after day after day after day after day with care and love. That's what stands the test of time. So how can we discern next right steps? Pause and ask some questions. Make choices that point to God's image over our own. Seek counsel and make the choice that will stand that test of time. Back to my seminary discernment. Some people that I knew were very adamant I should not go to Duke. And some people that I knew were very adamant that I should. There was no way I was going to please everybody with whatever choice I made. I had to, my own concerns about Duke. I, I wasn't quite sure about it. So I went to the school and I learned firsthand and I talked to people and I learned. Again, I had some of my own insecurities about going there. I just wasn't sure if that was the place I should go. And then something interesting happened my senior year in college. As it turned out, there was a new residence director who came to campus that my college had hired. And he had just happened to come from, of all places, Duke Divinity School. He had had the best experience there. And he spent the better part of that year telling me of his amazing experience. And I kid you not, almost every day, consistently day after day after day, in some way, he would find me and he'd say something like, just go check it out. Just go visit. I really think this is the place for you. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I appreciated there. Talk to this person. Talk to that person. And at just the right time, Todd came into my life and he walked with me and he offered counsel and he pointed to God and he helped me ask good questions and he answered those questions day after day after day. And as I prayed and as I explored and as I discerned, the way eventually became clear and doors opened up for me to go to Duke. And I am so grateful that God led me there. It was the perfect place for me at that time to continue to learn and grow in faith and in my love of Jesus Christ. To love Jesus with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my being. To think critically and care deeply. And maybe most significant of all, had I not gone to Duke for that year, Jen and I never would have gone to England to serve in ministry for one year, which means we never would have gone to Altoona, Pennsylvania to serve as it turned out for 10 years, which means we never would have ended up in Williamsport, Pennsylvania to serve with you. And I can't imagine not serving and connecting with you wherever you might be today. I love you. And I love being in ministry with the people connected in this place. And I believe that God is doing a good and holy work in you. And it's a privilege to serve with you. In fact, it's an honor to serve with you. May we be a people who are both honorable and also who discern God's will and desire in all things.